Lord, we do remember Camp Arrowhead and Camaclog and the, the people that are, are working hard because they've been called to do this camp ministry. Lord, we pray for the meeting that's going to happen soon, that you would be there. You already have been there guiding this process for years, this process that is culminating in the next few days. Lord, I thank you for the true axes, and they didn't say anything, but they're back. Thankful that they're back. Hunter is a married man. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful ceremony, uh, the family being together for safety along the way. Lord, we're just thankful that they're back. We give you praise. God, we know that there are many requests that all of us have, many things that people don't mention but are on our hearts. There are people that we love that are far from you, God, that that they would know you. And as we enter into this Easter time, this, this Passion Week, God, please bring to our minds those who are far from you that need you. In this moment, Lord, we, we intercede for their eternal souls. Right now, the person in your mind that you're thinking of that needs, that needs to know Jesus, would you just... Pray for them silently to yourself. Pray that they would come to know God. Ask God to use you if that would be helpful. Ask God to give you opportunity. Lord, we love you. We know that there are many who need you. This young 16-year-old girl, Paige, please intercede, Lord, and may she be healed in your name. Thank you, Jesus. In your powerful name, amen. Jesus is the subject. Center of all that we do, the focus of everything that we are. And how much more is that true during the week between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday? Passion Week is here. Jesus really is the subject of this week. But not just the church. My hope and my prayer would be that Jesus is the subject of this entire week for your family. That Jesus is the subject of your thoughts, your meditations, of your heart, all week. That as you go to work, or as you are interacting in the community, that you will be thinking about Jesus. How will you make Jesus the center of your week this week? Lord God, as we open up your word today, it's with expectation. We desire to know you in a deeper and fuller way because of your word and we desire, Lord, that your word would come into our lives, come into our hearts, come into our minds in this moment, Holy Spirit, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Thank you, Rita, for reading the account of Palm Sunday this morning. And, of course, that 
triumphal entry of Jesus is in all four of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. By the way, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. The four Gospels. We call them the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because they are, they are the account of the good news of Jesus Christ. They tell the story of Jesus, the story of the good news, from four different perspectives. And it's worth looking at all four perspectives. As you read the account of the triumphal entry, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today because I think God is leading us somewhere else. Remember Hosanna. Does anybody know what the word Hosanna means? Anybody? Hosanna. Anybody? It means save. Save. It means save. So the people, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, they were yelling, Hosanna! And the word meant save! Save us! It was, a, it was an expression that was filled, it was pregnant with meaning. Because it was this idea, save us, Messiah! Messiah being the anointed king. They were saying that one word was pregnant with thousands of years of expectation. Save us, King of David. Save us from this situation that we are in. Save us, King. And of course, David was the king a thousand years before Jesus. And God had promised to David that his sons would always, forever, eternally be on the throne of the nation of Israel. And here now was this people that were under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and they were waiting in expectation for the king, the son of David, to come and to save them. And now, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, with palm waves waving, of course, that itself was pregnant with meaning. The meaning of the king, the expected king, would enter Jerusalem with the palms waving. Save us, King. But I've preached on Palm Sunday before. You can go back and listen to that sermon. If you really want a Palm Sunday sermon, it's on the website. Today God has led us to a different place. But I did at least want to remind you that Hosanna means say. And it's pregnant with meeting. But there's so much more. Here's one of the things that, that I fear happens in, in our church celebration of what we call Easter. Uh, I fear that people only read the Bible on Sundays. And so I think what happens a lot of times is that people come to, to church on Palm Sunday and they hear, Palm Sunday, it's great, Jesus comes in. And then they come back next Sunday and we go, Jesus is alive, he's come back from the dead. Yay! And so, I think for some people, their celebration of Easter consists of Jesus is King, followed by Jesus is risen from the dead. Yay! And you skip what happens in the middle. I think most Christians, truthfully, most Christians skip everything between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Because they don't really want to think about it, I think. Or actually, maybe their lives are just busy. And they just don't really get into the celebration of Easter and what the week means. I think they just kind of want to come to church on Sunday and then come to church on Sunday. And that's kind of what they want to do. 
There is so much that happens between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. In fact, think about this. The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's 28 chapters. And the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, happens in chapter 21. Do you understand that more than a quarter of Matthew is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life? From chapter 21 to 28. That's a lot. That's a lot. Seven chapters are about what happens between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. You know, if you just go to, from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, you're missing 25% of what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. 25%. Mark, it's, it's chapter 11 is the triumphal entry, and all the way to chapter 16 is the resurrection. In Luke, it's chapter 24 to chapter 28. And in John, it's chapter 12 to chapter 21. A huge amount of what we understand to be the Christian faith happens between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. A huge amount. I want to talk about that huge amount. But as a way of coming into this, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. A new command I give you. Dave, you got that? There you go. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Last week I reminded you of this. I reminded you of the importance of this passage for what it means in our daily lives as followers of Christ. And I want to encourage you over and over and over to live this out every day of your life. More and more and deeper and deeper should be our understanding of what it means to love one another as followers of Jesus Christ. A never-ending maturity into love. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But what does that look like in real life? Well, like for us, Jesus showed us. We don't have to guess. Jesus showed us exactly what it looks like to do that. Now, the, I told you there's four Gospels. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Not all of the Gospels are powerful, but John is unique compared to the other three Gospels. Because in John, John focuses more on Jesus' interaction with the disciples and less on Jesus' interaction with the crowds. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they give a wonderful picture of Jesus interacting mostly with the crowds of people and with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they are, they are vitally important. But John, John is about Jesus taking his disciples and pouring into them. Specifically, chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Five entire chapters. Are you listening to this? Five entire chapters in the book of John are what happened in one night. And in fact, just one interaction that Jesus had with his disciples... Just one meal and what happened around that meal, five entire chapters. 
John 13 to 17. And these five chapters, as you can imagine, five chapters to describe one meal, get a little bit of detail. And we get a, a look inside the intimate relationships between Jesus and his disciples. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's meaningful. That one meal, the celebration of the Passover meal, and Jesus is teaching to his disciples about the Holy Spirit and what, and what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And Jesus praying for himself and for his disciples and for us. All in those five chapters. If you just had one section of the Bible, like if you were in prison or something and you were only allowed, I don't know why it would be, but you, you could only pick one little section of the Bible, you'd do pretty well choose John 13 through 17. You would do pretty well. But, I want, to, I want you to look at how it started. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Look how that incredible five chapter section starts. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do That is how Jesus started his time, his meeting, with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. Now this is a powerful scripture. It's a powerful passage. And I have read this passage of scripture many, many times. I preached on it. But in the past couple weeks, I ran across a verse that struck me like lightning. 
And it's given me an, a new, another perspective on what I just read to you. Look at, Matthew, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 7. The very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's said by John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Do you know who John the Baptist is? Well, you, you maybe do. But if you're in my timeline small group, I just spent like two hours explaining to you the significance of it. <coughs> Look at Matthew 11, verses 11 through 15. This is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And there, Jesus is reminding his disciples of the very last chapter of the book of Malachi, the last chapter in the Old Testament. And if you are in my sixth grade release time class, I just told you this. The last chapter of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, speaks of the prophecy of John the Baptist coming. No, it doesn't say John the Baptist. It says Elijah's coming. Elijah's coming. And he will be the forerunner of the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah, the anointed king, whom the people on Palm Sunday welcomed into Jerusalem with waving palms. It all fits together. And do you understand that this person, John the Baptist, who had the anointing of Elijah upon him, that no one greater has been born of woman, was not worthy to untie the thongs of Jesus' sandals. And that's the God who washed the feet of his disciples. John the Baptist, who had the spirit of Elijah, who was the greatest, and equal the greatest of any person who's ever been born of a woman, was unworthy to untie Jesus' shoes. And that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I've known both of those verses my whole life. But this week I have put them together. This is not rocket science, but it's superpower. Do, do, you, do you see the connection and the power of the foot washing of Jesus to his disciples? Are you grasping what I'm saying? It's profound. It's profound. The greatest man who ever lived, who was ever born of women, John the Baptist, was unworthy to untie the shoes of the one who washed the feet 
of his followers. You know, I find something really amazing about the Gospel of John compared to the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know what's amazing? Five chapters were spent on this meal that Jesus had with the disciples. Five chapters. Starting with the foot washing and then talking about all manner of things. Going through the Passover meal. And you know what's amazing about the Gospel of John? It says nothing about communion. There is no reference to communion in the Gospel of John. The, the act of communion of, of the bread and the new covenant and the blood, all that, that comes from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet the most time spent about the upper room is in John. The other three Gospels don't talk about foot washing. So imagine this. If you were in the first century as a Christian, and the only one of the four Gospels that you were able to get, and there were Christians that only got one of the Gospels, because the Gospels went to different places. There was a time when there were Christians that only had the Gospel of John, did not have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Imagine! They wouldn't have known about communion, but they would have known about foot washing. Let that sink in for a second. Let that sink in for a second. Because we, in the church today, literally do communion religiously. It's literally religious. It isn't. We make sure, in our, in our tradition, we do it once a month. But there are other branches of Christianity where you don't have church without taking communion. Lee and Alicia, you were just at the Vatican. Like, you don't do Mass without communion. Right? That's the way it is. Because you haven't had church unless you've had communion. And these same churches, ours included, that make sure we celebrate communion religiously, skip foot washing. Do you, do you recognize... That might be a problem. Let's think about this for a moment. Have we forgotten foot washing in the church today? When Christians think about foot washing, I think they have the wrong idea about what it is and why we do it. You see, I think most of us think that feet are gross. My Pastor Mike's not here. Just uh, a Wednesday ago, he had all the youth take off their shoes and socks. He spread out first, but it didn't help. Like, there is a smell that's permeated the, the, the sound absorbing. These don't just absorb sound. They absorb smells. If you were to go and just sniff one of these sound absorbing things, you would smell youth feet. There's a unique smell to feet. And some people, no matter what they do, their feet stink. You can spray them, you can put powders, it doesn't, you can put any insoles, Dr. Stroll's insoles, it don't help. And I don't know why. They just smell bad. Most people's feet don't smell real good. It's why in youth, I love the old youth games. We had a relay one time where someone had to pick up Cheetos with their toes and feed them to another person. I was thinking about bringing that into adult church. I don't know what you guys think. We need more youth-style relays in the church. Way too boring. Looking at the back of each other's heads. We need some relays. Who's with me? 
the youth workers of the So I, I feed our gross. And as adults, we're like, ain't no way, Pastor Jason, you're going to do something like that in adult church. I'm fine with different church. Because that's gross. Is it really gross? Yeah, it's really gross. <laughs> and yet, Jesus watched his disciples. Oh, and commanded us to do the same. Did you forget that part? There's a command in there. Hmm. So why should we do foot washing? Because Jesus told us to? Did you want another reason? There's some squirming going on. There's squirming. Feet are gross, Pastor Jason. And after all, I only do what's comfortable. That's what my faith in Christ is about. Ouch. That hurts. It's gross. I don't like it. Well, to help you understand what foot washing is, I want to compare it to two things. Two things that one I've already talked about, but I want to do a comparison and help you understand. Okay? These two things, they're called, we call them ordinances. Some churches get fancy and call them sacraments. Okay? But I want to talk about two, and actually I'm talking about three, what we call ordinances in the Church of God. And I'm going to compare the three ordinances, and when I'm done, the goal would be, you would go, Oh, that makes sense. So before we do that, you're looking a little bit tired. So I'm going to go back to my youth ministry days, and I'm going to ask you, if you're feeling tired, to would you please stand up, because this, I need you to stand up. If you're at home, you've got to do this too, you guys can. Come on, man. I know it's, it's hard. I know your knees probably hurt. Come on. Some of you are like, hey, stand up. <laughs> I do that. Come on, stand up. I can wait until I'll just wait. Still wait. Stand up. Please. Come on. I'm going way past level 30 if everyone stand up. Come on, everybody. Give it a chance. Give it a chance. Come on, you're really going to make me stand. Okay, come on, let's go, stand up. It's doable, I know. You, you walked in, I know you can do it. Jesus, that those people next to you would be people that you would be willing to bend 
down and wash their feet. Now, if you're willing to stand up for Jesus, are you willing to bow down for Jesus? Are you? Are you willing to lower yourself? To humble yourself? The way that Jesus humbled himself for his disciples. Are you willing? In some ways it's easy to stand up, isn't it? To stand up for Jesus and to stand up for those things that Jesus tells us to stand up for. It's easy to stand up for our rights, isn't it? It's easy to stand up and, and proclaim all of these things. And yet, it seems to me that it might be a lot harder to bend down. I know it's harder to bend down because there's a whole lot of Christians that no matter what I say or do right now, no matter if I use the word or don't, will not wash another people's feet. They simply won't. They'll stand up. Heck, they'll go to the Capitol and march. They'll be in a pro-life rally. You name it, they'll do it. They'll stand up. But they won't bend down. Have you ever thought about that that's a problem? Please be seated. I would make an argument that there are many, many Christians who are willing to participate in communion that simply will not participate in foot washing. And I might make an argument that that explains maybe about half of what's wrong with the church. I want to talk about baptism. Baptism is a universally practiced ordinance of all Christians. All Christian churches have some form of baptism. Every church either sprinkles, or they immerse, or they baptize babies, or they baptize adults. One way or another, one age or another, every Christian church baptizes. Now, I'm not going to explore. This is not a baptism sermon. I just want to make a point. The point is that all churches baptize as part of the life of a church. But think about this. Even though churches do not all agree on how we are to baptize, we do all agree that baptism is a washing away of the old life and a taking up of the new life in Christ. Now, we also agree that this, this washing away is not actually about physically washing dirt off people, right? When people get baptized, we don't get the, the loofah sponge out and scrub, right? I mean, obvious. It's, it's symbolic, right? So we're not, we're not literally scrubbing dirt off people when we baptize, but we understand that baptism represents the scrubbing of dirt. The scrubbing of the dirt of sin has been removed. For the Church of God, baptism is a public symbol of dying to our old life, you die when you go into the water, and being raised to new life in Jesus Christ. 
by the power of Jesus Christ. It's a way of telling the world you are a disciple of Jesus, but it is not literally a physical bath, is it? You don't literally scrub people with a sponge. Okay? Now that seems pretty obvious, right? Good. Now, consider communion. The second sacrament, or what we call ordinance. Think about communion. Like baptism, communion is a universally practiced ordinance in all Christian churches. Every church practices communion in one form or another. Some churches take it every week, some once a month, some every few months. Some churches use real wine. Some churches use grape juice. Some churches think that the bread and the wine literally becomes the body of Christ. Some churches think it's a symbol of the body and the blood of Christ. But I want you to realize that in one form or another, all Christian churches celebrate communion today. Obviously, I've got to preach a whole sermon about communion. That's not the focus of what we're doing today. The point is, all Christians do it. But, even though all Christians do not agree on the how of communion, we do all agree that communion is a symbolic meal that reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice for us. But listen, it is a meal, but we all know it's not a meal that is meant to fill us up. Right? All Christians everywhere know that communion is not meant to be an all-you-can-eat buffet. You don't practice communion and then say to yourself, well, I don't have to go home and eat lunch now. Because that's not what communion is, is it? It's a meal, but it's a symbolic meal. It's not a meal that's meant to literally fill us up. It's a symbol. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? How does foot washing compare with baptism and communion? Well, in the same way that baptism is not meant to be a physical bath, and communion is not meant to be an actual meal, foot washing is not meant to be an actual washing of dirt off someone's feet. Like when we practice foot washing, you don't have to scrub the, the, the toenails out. Right? You don't have to like get between the toes. You don't have to scrub the athlete's foot off the body. You don't have to have the chunks of skin fall off into the water. Because that's gross. It's a symbol. It's not meant to clean the foot. It's a symbolic act of humbleness. It is the embodiment of servanthood. Now think about this. Even though baptism is symbolic, we are still supposed to do it as Christians. Yes or no? Yes. Even though communion is symbolic, in other words, we don't eat it to get full, we are supposed to do this as Christians. Yes or no? In the same way, foot washing is symbolic. And we are supposed to do it as Christians. Look at John 13, 14, and 15 again. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Is that confusing? Does anybody have a, a question of interpretation about that? I don't know if a command of Jesus could be more clear than that. We're called to do this in the same way. We are called to experience baptism and communion. The Church of God has three ordinances. Two. Because Jesus gave us three things to do. Ordinances. Things to do. Commands. Right? Another way of saying ordinance is command. Or law. I mean, what word do you want to use? So let's just take a moment and just consider, just very quickly, that foot washing is set up by Jesus as a lasting thing that Christian is supposed to do. If this is true, then we need to understand what Jesus meant by foot washing. What is the historical basis for foot washing that Jesus is drawing from? Of course, the Bible gives us all kinds of, of examples of foot washing. I mean, in biblical history, foot washing was obviously for personal hygiene and refreshment. And there's a bunch of verses that talk about washing your feet as a way of hygiene. It's an act of hospitality. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, verse 44, Jesus notes to the Pharisee that he didn't even give him a bowl of water when he entered the house. It's just a, it was a custom. It's a custom that you, you wash your feet. And it's an expression of thanksgiving and devotion to Jesus. We know in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, do you remember? Jesus' feet were washed by a woman with her tears and with perfume in her hair. Do you remember? It's an expression of devotion to Jesus. And in the Old Testament, we even know that washing of feet was part of being made ready for temple duty, like as the priests washed their feet along with their hands to be made ready for duty. And outside the Bible, we know that in the Roman Empire, slaves were the ones that washed the feet of guests when they came in or of the people of the house. Slaves actually were there at the door ready to wash people's feet as they came in. It was the job of a slave, the job of a servant. It was a menial task. And Jesus repurposes all of those things, all of those themes, he repurposes this idea of foot washing into something new, something even more powerful. Consider this. As you think about baptism, baptism is like it symbolizes the grace of God which brings us to conversion. The Lord's Supper symbolizes the grace of God that blesses us with the presence of the Lord Jesus. And foot washing is like the grace of God which renews us as disciples of Jesus Christ. So, when, when you hopefully have been baptized... Most of you have probably been baptized. If you haven't, let's get you baptized. That's like a symbol of your salvation. And communion is like a, a reminder, you know, symbolically and, and periodically, that Christ died for us. But you understand that foot washing is a symbolic and periodic reminder of who we are. And if you don't do that, you become people that remember Jesus but don't understand what it means to enter into his humbleness. 
And that is a perfect description of the American church today. People that know about Jesus, we know what he did for us, but we don't understand what that means to go out and serve others in humbleness. We've lost sight of that because we're not doing the third ordinance. At least partially, I think that's true. We practice the other ones. We do them with regularity. But we don't practice the literal ordinance that Jesus gave us to bring us back into humbleness with each other. Do you see that? This is a sermon to encourage you to participate in foot washing. When maybe you would have never thought that that would be something you'd even do. It's just too weird. That can't possibly be something that would... I didn't come to church for that. This is just this is too far out there. What is this, some kind of weird cult? I'm not asking you to sacrifice a goat. Okay? That would be paganism. That's not what we're doing. I'm asking you to participate in an ordinance of Jesus in which you identify with the humbleness of serving one another. Peter said in John 13, 8, No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Humbleness and service is not optional in the Christian faith. Humbleness and service is not optional in the Christian faith. Do you understand? That if people look at you and they don't see humbleness, that's a problem. That might be an eternal problem. Foot washing is not a sign of salvation the way baptism is, but it is a sign of continued connection to the humbleness of Jesus Christ in your life. You see, Peter was already sitting at the table with Christ. He was already saved, as we, if you want to use modern terminology. Peter was already saved, but Jesus said, you're already clean, but I still need to wash your feet. See, we, we try to turn everything into a, it's either a salvation issue or it's not an issue at all. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said you're supposed to do this. You can't. Servanthood is a part of who we are. Look at Matthew 23, 11 through 12, and then we're going to finish up. Matthew 23, 11 through 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And there's parallels to that in Mark 9 and Matthew 20. The greatest are the servants. The greatest are the servants. Humbleness is a key characteristic. A key characteristic to the point that we're supposed to celebrate our humbleness on the same level as baptism and holiness is foot washing. Like, have you ever considered that? We are supposed to be characterized by our slavery to Christ. We are supposed to be characterized by our servant attitude to others. 
We are supposed to be categorized by everything that foot washing represents. When I look around the church generally, not just us, but the church, I see a, almost a complete lack of homeless. Coincidentally, I also see almost no Christians actually practicing foot washing. Might those go together? Interesting thought, isn't it? Can I remind you of what our identity is as a Christian? John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you recognize that that's what Jesus said right after he had washed their feet? That's John 13, 34 to 35. Foot washing is John 13, 1 through 17. Do you see that? Jesus just showed them the example of that. You know, our upper room service we're doing on Thursday, for many years in the church, it was called Monday Thursday. Have you ever heard of that? It's Monday Thursday. And everybody's like, I have no idea what Monday means. I would like to tell you what Monday Thursday is about. Monday comes from the Latin word mandatum. What do you suppose mandatum means? Mandate. That's why it's called Monday Thursday. It's a command of Jesus to love one another as exampled by foot washing. That's what Monday Thursday is. So if you were one of those Christians that was thinking about just thinking about Easter on Palm Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday, you're skipping Monday Thursday. You're skipping a command of Jesus. I told you earlier, why should you do foot washing? Because Jesus said so. Right? Because Jesus told you to. I want to end today by suggesting a different set of five words. Because Jesus told you to. That's the command. Can I give you another five words? Look at John 13, 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Because you will be blessed. It is a command. And with that command comes a blessing. I invite you to the upper room service on Monday, Thursday. I invite you to come and participate in foot washing. Because Jesus told you to, and because you will be blessed. I love Passion We as a church need to reconnect with our humbleness, with our servitude to Jesus Christ, 
to each other. Thank you, Jesus, for your powerful words in John 13. Oh God, how I, I desire for your blessing to just rain down upon us. And we've got a promise from you that we will be blessed by doing this. Do we have the strength to overcome our own thoughts of the grossness of other people's feet? Do we have the, un the understanding of humbleness to recognize that maybe our feet smell? <laughs> and maybe we're embarrassed because of the condition of our feet. But maybe that's all part of what this mandatum is about. It is my prayer that we as Christians would recognize the absolute vital importance of foot washing and what it symbolizes, the humbleness of our hearts as we love one another. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things.